Hello, and welcome to the Nomi Key Show. I am Nomi Key Konst. So dividing the left, it is an old game. But there are some very new and obviously very powerful players now. In one way, they are familiar. Big corporations armed with vast capital. But they are armed with something else that, say, Carnegie and Rockefeller could never dream of. Algorithms. I am talking about Facebook and Google, which also, of course, owns YouTube, and a few other tech giants we're all familiar with whose business model is partly built on driving excitement, controversy, rage, which builds an audience, which brings in money, money for both the platforms and for those who ride the algorithms up. In other words, the algorithm rewards divisiveness and frankly, rage. It rewards glib talks that make us angry rather than smart, you know, the smart talk that makes us more likely to think deeply and then act in effective ways. And so these algorithms work to the advantage of dumb, destructive, and divisive ideas, even if they are meant and come from decent places. And of course, Jimmy Dore is such a perfect illustration of this. But here is what needs to be said. This episode is, is not about Medicare for all. I will start with the basic idea that those who've been advocating for Medicare for all for the last 10 years, who have made it the most popular policy in the country, those folks, they're not with Jimmy Dore's strategy because they've been working the mechanics. Let me read a sentence uh, to you from a smart piece by Eric Lovitz in the New York Magazine today. Quote, ignoring the structural obstacles to single payers passage, the fragility of public support for the policy and the simple fact that people can share political values while earnestly disagreeing about the best way to advance them, all for the sake of declaring Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, an enemy of America's uninsured, is a sound strategy for ginning up interest in your rant-based YouTube show. Again, let me repeat the last part. Jimmy Dore executed a, quote, sound strategy for ginning up interest in his rant-based YouTube show. Okay, and let's not stop here. Why is that a sound strategy? Well, as a YouTube host myself, I will tell you why. Because, of course, the the algorithm that drives audiences to your show rewards ranting. Hi, I do an opening for a reason. (laughs) So do the algorithms on Twitter and Facebook. So if your purpose is to build a bigger audience, do just what Jimmy Dore did. Find someone popular to attack and let it rip. Of course, you must not feel guilty if your viewers are misled by your pointless ideas. Of course not. Or grow disillusioned and cynical because you gave them the notion that if only AOC had a spine, the world could be made better. Now we can blame Jimmy Dore for being cynical and manipulative. But he is just a tool. The toolbox in this case belongs to Google, which owns YouTube. They are the ones who need to be held to the account base. I mean, that's really it for creating a system that gives Jimmy Dore the incentive to do what he did to AOC. You can criticize your lawmakers and pressure them, but this was not about that. We need to take these tech companies and their algorithms apart. We, we will see how they reward the very things we say we don't want divisiveness, shallowness, racism, capitalism. And here is one more that I feel every day, misogyny. The algorithm makes it harder to have a reasonable conversation. They make it harder for complicated ideas to be heard. And yes, they make it harder for women to succeed here because the audience is overwhelmingly male. And when I say overwhelmingly, I mean 86% of our audience is male under the age of 44. This is not identity politics. This is capitalism. I am extremely grateful, in fact, to all of you who do follow our show. You guys, and and I'll say this again, by the way, 86% of you are guys You are smart and curious and you want to understand how things work. And that is incredible. And you stick around on Friday when we talk about gender and class because it's not discussed enough on this platform. And I am so grateful to you. And I'm grateful to the folks who platform women and talk about these ideas. My message isn't that Jimmy Dore is the problem. My message is the tech world we all live in is the problem. Jimmy Dore is pursuing his career in a way that the tech platforms reward. This is about the economy and, of course, how capitalism works. Capital has created an overwhelmingly male audience on YouTube. Young men are understandably mad. Tapping this anger creates a viral effect, and that's what the algorithm does. It rewards rage by bringing you more young men. I'm not saying that women aren't angry either. I'm just saying when I open up my YouTube, I don't get political videos. I get makeup tutorials which I don't watch. 
So something's going on here. This is how the right wing grows its audience, of course, too. It is very hard to break through. Hard for women, hard for people of color, hard for men who don't feel like yelling. Of course, just ask Sam Cedar, compare his numbers to Ben Shapiro's and, and Dave Rubin's. That's why he talks about this so much. By the way, even if you don't believe me, and, and sure, I've got an incentive to say this, then go ask Timit Gabriel. She is the AI genius who was fired by Google for criticizing Google's AI just a few months ago. Here is Jay Brew on NPR the other day explaining her dismissal. Let's play that clip real quick. When Google ousted researcher Timnit Gabru, she felt targeted. My theory is that they had wanted me out for a while uh, because I spoke up a lot about you know, issues related to black people, women, marginalization. It's something she really believed. In other words, this is not about identity politics. This is about a hegemonic corporate power of Google. And it is about the power of YouTube to elevate, reward Jimmy Dore and his cadre for out outrage and not reward by default, penalize nuance. This isn't about deplatforming. Forming. Let's make that very clear. This is not about deplatforming. It is about the ghost in the machine, the algorithm, giving the advantage to some, to some, to some who are making millions at the expense, expense of others. This is what Timnit Jabru was warning about when she got fired. People of color do not get a fair shot. What is more obvious? This is capitalism. Women don't get a fair shot. Progressives, of course, do not get a fair shot. Progressives have to work harder to break through the algorithm, whereas Dave Rubin can go viral for a silly rant. The most popular political shows are, of course, from the right wing. And most of the YouTube political audience, of course, is from young men, almost entirely. And when you don't have a fair shot, you have two choices. You can do what Jimmy Dore did and resort to cheap tactics that are not even backed by the biggest organizers around Medicare for All, like the National Nurses United or Bernie Sanders. Or you can do what we do here at the Nomi Key Show and what Sam Cedar does and what Michael Brooks did and what Jacobin's doing, Anna Kasparian and Nando are doing. Nuance, process, breaking apart the institutions and introducing authors and strategists. There are so many on the left, as you know, that are doing this and really thoughtfully doing it with very little money. You can work twice as hard to build a relationship with viewers like you guys. And I am so extremely grateful because I looked at our numbers um, thinking that we would be hit hard and, and you guys have stuck around. And I think that's because we've built a base of support that really cares about policy. And we may even disagree on, on this, but what I appreciate about our community is that we can disagree and we can discuss the process and not take it personally. So again, thank you. We have an extraordinary show for you today. Eli Merritt is on, and Napoleon DeLegend and Andrea Ravensky are on later for our panel. We'll be right back really quick after this break with Eli Merritt. Welcome back to the Nomiki Show. I am Nomiki Kanz, of course. Uh, I Sometimes we, we book guests in advance, and... It's almost like kismet there. The topic that they're coming on, you know, well in advance ends up really just seamlessly working into the show and the opening, which is obviously a response to to the news of the moment. Uh, that's how we do this on the show. And I I mean, I could not have imagined a better guest for this this show than Eli Merritt. Uh, Eli Merritt is a psychiatrist. He's an ethicist and an author. Uh, he has He's done writing on political history of the American Revolution entitled Disunion Among Ourselves. It's scheduled for publication next year. He's written for the LA Times, Seattle Times, New York Times, New York Daily News, da, 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 all these different places. Uh, Disunion Among Ourselves is how North-South compromise saved the American Revolution. But there's some other stuff here that I am I, I'm, I, I, like, I couldn't have imagined a better guest. Uh, so Eli, thanks for joining us. And my pleasure. I'm glad to be here. So I'm, I'm not sure if you could see the opening, but I, I discussed at the beginning of the show how capitalism, um, I mean, not that we don't know this, capitalism has always intrinsically hurt, uh, obviously, the people of color, uh, women the most. And so uh, we're ha I, I start off the show talking about how there's this division right now happening on the left. I'm not sure if you're following it. Uh, if you're not, you know, 
good for you. You're not on Twitter 24-7. But there's a division on the left right now. And I think, um, you know, I tweeted something out the other day about how our political discourse in this moment on the left is being dictated by somebody and and a group of folks whose audience is 87% young male. And I don't think that's an identity argument. I think that is just a reflection of how YouTube has incentivized rage and incentivized in some cases, in many cases, chauvinism. And it's left out voices that really deserve to have a seat at the table in, in pushing forward a certain discourse. And right now, um, all the oxygen in the room is being sucked up by a few voices that are male. So I'm reading about your book and I, I had no idea how much chauvinism was, was, um, I mean, I knew obviously it existed <laughs> during the American Revolution, but was a present, uh, I, I, would I say debate? Is that the right way of saying it? To run that by me again, you're asking. Chauv- chauvinism, how, how much chauvinism was part of the American Revolution, the discourse of the American Revolution? Well, I mean, I think you're right about that. Of course, we're going back to the founding of the nation in the yep. 18th century, and we start uh, with an understanding that the entire power structure was not only one of white males, but was of affluent white males. Uh, So, I mean, that's where the concept of democracy and equality was very central in their lives, but it was very restricted to that demographic. But one of the beauties of the American Revolution that's been written about by me and, and, and others is what's so we can think of the revolution and we can think of that period of chauvinism in two ways. One is we can see the dark side of it. The other is we can see what was handed down, the legacy that was handed down so remarkably during that early founding period. And that is the legacy of inalienable rights, the legacy of equality. And I think critically the legacy of the necessity of a constitutional order in order to constrain power and also to foster liberties. So that's the way I myself reconcile that, that difficulty of the fact that the American Revolution was, rightly said, a period of great chauvinism. Yeah, I mean, you discussed that uh, between 70, 1774 and 1783, there was this powerful regional chauv- chauvinism and government infighting that threat, threatened to break apart the Constitutional Congress. Can, can you explain a little bit more about those dynamics? Yeah, well, that's a different type of chauvinism, uh, and that is the one that I'm writing about. I assume the white male chauvinism in the book for the most part, but that's the one I'm writing about. And the, why I think that the book is important is it captures sort of untold history of the American Revolution, but it also has resonance for today, and that is the real focus of this narrative history of the Revolution, which is so different from any others. It, normally, it's military history or biography is that I'm really looking at the ugly underside of the revolution and the prejudice and difficulty that in spite of the power structure being white male, they had so many religious differences, regional differences, slavery was undergirding everything as an incredible difference. So when they came together in the midst of an evolving war, they had great difficulties in reconciling their interest and moving forward and and, and the energy inside the Congress in the 1770s and 1780s was an energy that was often towards disunion and separation and breaking apart. So that's where the question of how do they transcend that in the Congress becomes important. And it wasn't just higher values and virtues, the ability to compromise. I do believe they had a dedication to transcending their, their differences that is greater than today. But it was also crisis that brought about that ability to bridge the gap of regional chauvinism that could have ended up, absolutely could have ended up in the 1780s in a breaking apart of the early 13 colonies into different uh, confederacies with civil war happening for sure at that time. So how were they able to do it? Um, you know, I think what's interesting about your perspective is, is you're looking at it also from a psychological perspective. Um, so what was it that... Uh, what were the mechanics of how they actually were able to come together and put aside some of the other differences in, in favor of, of, of greater unity? I think that a, the most important, when we look at polarization and we look at sectarianism, which they suffered from equally as greatly as we do today, I think that's an important thing to recognize. We're living in a moment of what we call hyperpartisanship. I've got to tell you, after reading thousands of letters and other records of that period, our time was certainly no more polarized than their time. Hmm. And 
So it what breaks, what I think historically, not only in the period of the American Revolution, but in other periods of history that I've heard, what is it that breaks through sectarianism and hyperpartisanship? And I think it's a confluence of several things. I think typically it's crisis. So we see this even today. We see this yesterday. What is it that brought about this $900 billion stimulus bill? It was not just transcendence to, 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 to cooperation. It was that. I don't take that out of the picture. But it's crisis, and often it's life and death, death crisis. If you read history cl- carefully, you find that in World War II with FDR. You find that in the civil rights movement. It's often crisis that intervenes on a circumstance where hopefully those who are trying to collaborate are not enemies, and therefore these factors come together and enable them to transcend to a higher purpose. That's another element of it that's so important. The the delegates to the early Congress, they were transcending to human rights, restricted, of course, to white males at that time, but nevertheless, to their own equality with the British across the ocean, they were being treated like second-class citizens. So they're all manner of fascinating parallels, I think, in, fight of, in spite of the fact that the fight for equality was very, so narrow at that time. I think what's what's so interesting, though, is, you know, I've, when I look at crisis, I mean, we've been dealing with crisis in, in this country, uh, inequality before the pandemic that was the most, most historic inequality since 1929, um, and of course, is just going to get worse and worse. But our lawmakers, yes, they were able to put this deal together a whole whopping 600 bucks that you're getting (laughs) since the last 1200 bucks nine months ago. Um, But there's also division in crisis. And so, you know, use this word transcendence. And I think that's such a powerful uh, term to use because sometimes we have to air out these fights, right? We have to actually debate it out um, for people to understand, you know, maybe the other side of it, uh, how serious it is for lawmakers to understand how much uh, anger there is outside of of the chambers of Congress um, because of their lack of the ability to respond. But in that moment, I mean, that was before focus groups, that was before polls, that was before Twitter. Uh, You know, of course, there were rebellions and protests happening, but... um, how did they get to transcendence despite all that? I mean, we're not at that point at all. And, uh, and we have all the tools and frankly, the education now uh, in a more universal way for transcendence. Hell, we've got Marianne Williamson running for president. Where's the transcendence? How are they able to do that? Well, I think I bet we will agree that one of the core problems we have is there's not enough transcendence, that uh, people are not dedicated. There's too much what one very good book calls uh, groupishness, kind of a righteous groupishness. So I'll comment just briefly is something we might want to come back to. But when I talk about equality in this case, economic equality is obviously of extraordinary importance. And I, there's a great book called The Crisis of the Middle Class Constitution by a colleague at Vanderbilt about that. But in this case, when I'm talking about equality, I am really strictly talking about constitutional, political and civil equality. But in answer to your question, I'll give you the example of how do you transcend of John Adams, of course, from Massachusetts, who was one of the most important uh, politicians and diplomats of the American Revolution, went on to be president. He has done some beautiful writing really about himself in which when he first went to Congress, he detected in himself and wrote about this to his wife, Abigail Adams, truly beautiful letters in which he said, I am noticing a big problem up here. And then he went on to describe all the many ways he felt that New England as a region was far superior to all of the other regions. He went on and on, we're superior in this, but then he stopped and said, but don't you see, this is the problem in politics. Mm. He felt like through self-examination and a recognition of his self-superiority, in this case, regional, that he needed to work to neutralize his own righteousness, neutralize his own self-superiority, which would, of course, enable him to let go and make sacrifices of things that he felt were beyond compromise. So that in answer to your question about transcendence, I do believe it's a psychological phenomenon. The group itself can encourage transcendence or individuals can discover it within their own personal psychologies. And then if they're lucky, they as leaders, they take that out to the larger group. I mean, what was happening in the Continental Congress? What, what were the things that they were arguing over? Um, that 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 made it so divisive? Well, in the beginning, before the war began in 1774, they went to Congress after the Parliament in rage over the Boston Tea Party in 1773. 
Parliament really acted in a very imprudent way, very punitive series of, of acts called the Coercive Acts, which basically put, uh, speaking of martial law, which came up recently, it put Boston under true martial law and took away all their powers of government. So all the colonies came together and what were they going to do? They didn't want to launch a war and they actually didn't want to launch into independence. All they wanted was the restoration of their rights. So the instrument that they had historically used to do that was economic civil disobedience. So getting, getting to the answer to your question, they first came in and Massachusetts in particular and New England in particular wanted the Congress to join in a total embargo of all trade with Britain, meaning imports and exports. Well, Virginia came with a directive from its assembly saying, it will join in immediately with embargo on all, all imports, but for a variety of reasons, including the fact that they owed a lot of money to the British, they would not be able to join an embargo on exports for another year. So that was that economic clash was one of the most significant things. And then they had different interests. The Southern colonies were interested in westward expansion. New England was interested in getting in gaining fishing rights in, uh, for cod and haddock in the area of Newfoundland, that's one thing. Who would be the general of the army? How they would appoint officers? Slavery was there and very disapproved of by New England at the time, but it actually, there was not a fight over whether they should end slavery or not, but how the states would be represented, would slaves be counted as people, would slaves be counted as wealth? They fought over all of these things and, and 12 other things I could tell you about. It's 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 super fascinating. I mean, the, the, I've always, in recent history, and some of these recent interpretations of 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 the founding fathers and and going into the Civil War and, and beyond, um, was slavery just the unifying one of these unifying forces? Because you can be transcendent, but there's also just bargaining chips, and if they could come together in some sort of um, you know North South deal. Uh, or, or whatever regional deals, I mean, this is pre-Civil War, uh, to, to have sort of an equal, you know, a similar perspective on slavery in terms of an economic argument, being self, self-sufficient. You know, if you're, not, if you're not dealing with Britain, export or import, you have to be able to maintain your own self-reli- self-reliance, right? And the workforce, of course, were slaves. So was that sort of part of their unification? Well, what I can say is that Uh, a careful reading demonstrates that in the New England in particular, there was shock over the widespread slavery in the Southern colonies. But with rare exception, no one was advancing an argument of ending the slave trade or ending slavery at that time, simply because it would be too explosive. They did discuss that, and it was there. It affected their their trade, though, too, right? It protected their economy. What slavery? Yes, in the north. Yes, that's true. That the that the north, northern, particularly the New England ships, were carrying carriers of slaves. So there was that. Yes, um, but you know, the voice of abolition was present at the very even before the Declaration of Independence. It was a weak voice. It's we don't know privately what people spoke about, but Thomas Paine, you know, who is well known for writing Common Sense, just before writing Common Sense, wrote a really remarkable document called African Slavery in America, in which he deplored slavery, deplored slave trading, said we're hypocrites if we call ourselves Christians and we continue to practice this. And he actually went on to recommend emancipation and said what has to happen is we have to give each freed slave a plot of land and reunite families that had been broken and give them a way to make a living wage. But the voice was so weak, it was there, but it was so rare that it right. emerged. But it was there, obviously. I mean, the, the best way to characterize the history of slavery in this country was done so just before the Civil War, and it's the irrepressible conflict. It was there even when it wasn't being discussed as a, as a powder keg political issue. It was there just waiting and waiting to either be resolved with emancipation or explode. And just going back to the founding fathers and and their ability to sustain this document, I mean, uh, is, is, 
is the root of it just because it did there was this this transcendent approach to to dealing with it is that is that sort of your your basis that you know obviously the constitution's been amended and 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 we can we can talk through you know the problems with it um but it has been transcendent. I mean, this is this is a, a living document that somehow, despite our divisions then and today, has been able to sustain itself and, and frankly, in some ways, defend our most, many ways, defend our most vulnerable communities in this country. So, I mean, is it because of that kind of approach, their their way of thinking about things in a much more um, philosophical lens than a than a political, the way that we do today, when we pass legislation? I think the some of the reasons that our Constitution has succeeded, as you say, as a living document, which has enabled, however painfully and however slowly, which has enabled a widening circle of access to equality for people from different racial and religious and demographic backgrounds, is precisely because it, citizens of this country have worked very hard to maintain both the democracy and separate from that, the constitution. I mean, we, we don't live in just a democracy. We live in a constitutional democracy. But the other essential element that I think we're not talking about enough is the ultimate glue of a constitutional democracy is ethical leadership. So I think for the most part, if we look back at our history, everyone's flawed in one way or the other, but if we look back, this country has done relatively well and maintaining ethical leadership in high political posts. And the greatest crisis that we have experienced in all of our history in violation of this principle occurred in 2016 with the election of Trump, who I think you also know my other area of, of wide writing is about Trump as a demagogue. Right. Right. So I just think that ethical leadership and that commitment to the principles of democracy and the commitment to the Constitution, to changing the Constitution, not overturning the Constitution, amending the Constitution, not overturning the Constitution, with this glue of ethical leadership. What I worry about most today is the loss of the ethical leadership. And the, the truth is, the constitutional democracy will break apart finally and dissolve and fail if we don't find a way to begin to minimize all of the demag demagoguery. The worst place for it is in the White House. And I just don't mean inflammatory language. I mean Trump violating the law. But also in our cable news, there's so many demagogues and social media is so filled with demagoguery, meaning people want get attention through the expression of hot emotion. And it works. People get popular, people make money, but it's not good for our democracy, that's for sure. Well said. Perfect way to end this interview. The theme of the show today, uh, you know, the, the real work, and, and, and this is where we have to pressure, hopefully, in the new administration, our tech companies to be much more thoughtful in their approach because we have to be very real. This is not, these platforms are not democratized. They're not. They don't give equal opportunity to everybody. They give better opportunity to those who are able to push rage uh, and and crazy conspiracy theories, frankly, in many cases, including our president. Um, and that, you know, chips away at every single semblance of whatever form of, of government that we do respect, um, whatever we have in our government that we do respect in terms of of, of, of lowercase democracy. So I, I, I greatly appreciate this conversation. Um, I think it could not come at a better time. And your book comes out in 2022? Yes, this union among ourselves. The subtitle is not set yet, but I think it, the oh. best subtitle is the the untold story of the American Revolution. Fantastic. Well, we'd love to have you back on then. Maybe maybe we'll have solved these problems. <laughs> if we make some progress, that would be enough. <laughs> maybe maybe just the platform stuff. <laughs> That's the algorithmic stuff. We'll start with that. Good. All right, Eli Merritt. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Namiki. Thanks. Take care. All right, before we go to our next break, I just want to, um, he mentioned Thomas Paine. I'm so happy he mentioned Thomas Paine because our book, our book, our, our book club starts. Uh, if you don't know about it already, go to patreon.com slash the Nomi Key Show. We have three different book club uh, levels. It starts on January 1st. And the first book that we're going to be covering is on Thomas Paine. Why is Thomas Paine important in this moment? Well, you just heard a little bit about it. Uh, Katrina Vanden Heuvel said, must reading for today's aspiring Democrat 
Democratic rebels and radicals. It is, of course, Thomas Paine and the Promise of America by Professor Harvey K., regular of the Nomi Key Show. He has so generously offered to uh, give a copy of this book for our show, frankly, um, to the first uh, I, I, first 10, I think. So the first 10 who sign up for this uh, book club may have already happened right now at, at this case. But anyways, this is our first book that we're covering. I am happy I'm going to announce our next four books because what happens is if you sign up for the book club, you get one, either a choice of one book a month, two books a month, or four books a month. And you get to choose which one you want, which book club uh, you want to be a part of, obviously, but also which book you want. You'll get a copy of the book in the mail. This is how crazy this is. So um, our, our first book is Thomas Paine, The Promise of America by Professor Harvey Kay, and we will have a whole conversation about that. We have had the author on already, Nina Lacani, Who Killed Berta Casares? I'm so excited to read this book. I'm, I'm, I can't even wait for it, but this is our second book in the book club. Of course, she was a, an indigenous environmental leader uh, who was killed in Honduras. And then I mentioned this on the Majority Report today. Our dear friend Jane McAlevey knows shortcuts her book, Organizing for Power in the Gilded Age, in the New Gilded Age. This is what we should be reading right now. We want Medicare for All to pass. Read this book. She discuss, discusses how to break down power structures, power map. Uh, that's just some, some, some teaser it's going to be a really thoughtful analysis and a good conversation. And then this one suggested by our dear friend, Arun Chowdhury. Um, it's been on my list for a while. The Plunkett of Tammany Hall, a series of very plain talks on very practical politics. Fascinating book. I already read it, but I'll read it again. And I can't wait to discuss it uh, with, with folks who will understand it and who are going to take part. So it's not just folks who are going to sign up for the book club, but people who are going to be part of our conversations, um, whether it's authors, activists, people who've read this book, these books, um, they're going to be in conversation with us. So you'll also get a podcast uh, each week if you sign up for the four books a week, uh, four books a month, or you get it um, for two or one book. So go check it out. Patreon.com slash The Nomi Key Show. We will be back in two seconds, two seconds with our panel. Oh, hey, by the way, have you smashed that like button? Are you subscribed to us on YouTube? Are you a member of our Patreon? That's how you get, um, I mean, obviously I just told you about the book club, but uh, not only do you get exclusive content on Patreon, special interviews, but uh, you know you can get swag like our little uh, mug here, very exciting mug. Uh, we have a bag, we have stickers. Um, you know, make sure to get in there, subscribe, like all that. All right. I'm excited about our, our next guests. Um, Napoleon DeLegend, of course, is one of our, our regulars. He is an Afrobeat hip hop artist. He is an activist. Uh, he has been featured on in so many different places. He's got an album you can get. What's the album called, Napoleon? How do we find uh, it? DBG, yeah, on all platforms, Dragon Ball G. Awesome, go check it out right now. And uh, welcome to the show, first time guest, Andrea Ravensky. She is a podcaster, vlogger, comedian, and the host of the YouTube show Above It All, which I am so grateful I discovered you. I mean, I'm not saying I've discovered you. I mean, I personally, like for the first time, discovered you. You uncovered uh, me. I was an archeological <laughs> uh, dig. You found me in an ancient ruins of a uh, pre-civilization. I appreciate <laughs> that. Well, <laughs> it was it was very difficult. No, um, I, our, a dear friend of our show, Jake Seligman, who is part of the Ben Dixon show, shared uh, your video and I on Jimmy Dore, which... I'm so done talking about, but we have to talk about it. Okay. All right. I'm, so I'm completely okay with talking about Jimothy. Uh, he's, uh, he's, he's a pretty funny character as far as I'm concerned. And personally, I wish people would take him less seriously. And that's my, that's kind of my, my message. I'm, I, I love the nickname Jimothy. <laughs> okay. That. It was very funny. All right. So let's, um, there's this, this New York mag, uh, article that went up today, uh, about, I, I mentioned it in the top of the show about um, Jimothy's response to AOC. Can we just show that that article uh, so people have, do we have it ready? Maybe not, all right. That's okay, we talked about the top of the show, there we go. So, nope, wrong one, just kidding. That's Rand Paul. Oh, no. <laughs> Oops, oh. I think we got the links wrong. Anyways, there's this article in New York Mag today. Um, it's, it's, it's getting circulation and you know, it's it's in the intelligencer, Eric Levitz. Uh, the title is Left's Most Naive Cynics Have Turned on AOC. You know, I, I come from the perspective, as much as this has become so divisive, um, 
I don't like calling anyone on the left naive. These, you know, these are working people. People are angry and upset that our government's not responding uh, to this crisis, to the many crises. But there is power in that word naive in that most of us have never worked on Capitol Hill. Uh, maybe we didn't see Schoolhouse Rock, how a bill becomes a law. <laughs> but, but what it did kind of highlight is the predatory behavior. And I wish the title was actually different. That there is, whether it's conscious or unconscious, um, there are, when you push out this divisive type of, of, of rhetoric, Maybe he was conscious of it, and maybe others who are supporting him are not conscious of it. It naturally pushes out really nuanced conversation. Um, I'm going to start with Napoleon because I see you shaking your head. What, what do you think of this whole situation? Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, the way uh, uh, Jimmy Dore, I, I think he understands his crowd very well, and and he he's driven by emotion, and people are going to respond to that, and and sometimes rightfully so because people are angry. So. That's something that's very appealing to them on, on, a, in a, on a visceral level. Uh, however, um, I mean, if, if you look at his track record, it's, it's, it's always about destruction. It's always about mudslinging. And when it comes to the left, solidarity is a big word. I mean, that, that, that's, that's what we strive for. We, we want to listen to each other. We want to be able to talk to each other. We want to be able to exchange ideas in, t in an intelligent manner and communicate our things well. So... Um, I don't think it's even a thing that we're all for Medicare for all. We all want it, you know, even AOC. If we just don't agree with the way Jimmy Dole wants her to proceed, doesn't mean you you, you could just like throw mud at, at one of our best allies like that. And that, and that matter, it's okay to criticize her. It's okay to, to push her in a certain way, but th this whole uh, rhetoric that we're using and the way the way matter we're going against it, I don't think it's just a, a good way to communicate, and it, it doesn't show any type of leadership and any type of like a, a messaging that that's going to bring us to the future. There's uh, um, uh, the Georgia uh, Senate uh, uh, election about about to go in a few weeks. They could use all that against us, and they 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 they, they could use these type of things. Uh, when we need these victories. So there's a timing. And when you're just dealing with emotion, you're not putting, taking that in consideration and, uh, among a lot of other things. Um, Andrea, I mean, you, you did this video um, and folks check it out. We'll put it in the link. Uh, we, we, as you guys know, I come on the majority report beforehand, so I wasn't able to break it up, but we'll cover it this week. I promise. Um, but go check out her video. We'll put it in the in, in information section. And I think, you know, what you did so well is you broke down the incentivized structure of not having nuanced conversation. And it's, there are people who have real ideas on how to pass Medicare for all, like National Nurses Union, who I think is owed a lot of credit for making Medicare for all such a popular bill. I mean, they went out there and they organized their members. They showed up at every debate. They showed up at every DNC meeting. They showed up at everything. And they pressured folks who would have never been in our corner, even if it's just as a co-signer, to join the Medicare for All bill. And they made it a topic of the presidential debates. So much so that the crazy people were put on stage to run for president, who I think literally were just there. I can't even remember their names now. Um, were literally just there to challenge Bernie Sanders and anybody on stage who supported Medicare for All. And guess what? It came out more popular as a result. But there are limitations. Once you get into institutions, institutions um, that are controlled by other people, the power mechanics are not in our favor. And that's why we have to be really thoughtful. So Andrea, I mean, you, you broke it down so well. Why do you think people are... are I mean, I know everyone's angry and I get it. Like we're, there's, we'll get to more stuff we can be angry about in a second. But why do you think Jimothy and his, and for more, more importantly, why do you think the smart people who are supporting Jimothy's goals are not taking the more reasonable approach, the Matt Stoller approach or the Dave Sirota approach or the NNU's approach if you just want to go there or Bernie Sanders' approach? Well, I mean, I, I would also, I would like to first start this out by looking at that primary process, right? There was one candidate who supported Medicare for all, no equivocations. That was Bernie Sanders. Who did Jimmy support? Right? It wasn't Bernie Sanders. Tulsi so Gabbard. If his whole thing- did not thing, support Medicare for all, by the way. Exactly. If his whole thing is about Medicare for all and that's his thing and that like, you know what? All right, that's cool. But that it's clearly 
not the case that he is like a Medicare for all person. This is the most important thing to me because when the best chance we had to get Medicare for all was during the primaries, right? We are probably not going to get it, it maybe for another five to 10 years. And that's like a good scenario at this point, right? Our best shot was in the primaries. And when push came to shove, it wasn't Bernie that Jimmy was supporting. So I find that to be very interesting. He does not have the credibility here to try to like spearhead a Medicare for all movement. And also like his whole YouTube show is based around getting attention. Now I've been doing a YouTube show uh, for about a year now. And I know whenever I would make a, a Joe Biden video, for example, especially like the month before the election, right? I would get like 10,000 views and there would be Trump supporters going like, wow, look at, look at Biden. He's crazy. And I would, I made like one, one video I made, I made like a hundred bucks. And that's like, you know, you know, I'm, I'm small. Here. Well, it's that's, a big you know, deal. That's, I mean, I don't think people that can help pay the rent, you know, like it, because, you know, I'm, I'm not that, uh, I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not buying a $2 million house. Let's just put it that way. Um, so I understand the impetus to cash in on popular things. And one of the things that really struck with me, uh, I think it was like maybe a week or so ago, it was around when this was first gaining traction, was Jimmy was talking about like, I came up with this idea in two weeks. It's so simple. Everything is so simple. I came up with it in two weeks. You came up with Medicare for all in two weeks. That's your idea. Did, well, did he write the bill? I'm sorry. Apparently, apparently <laughs> he wrote the bill. I don't know. My, like, my whole thing is that people, the, the Jimmy crowd are synonymizing. Uh, if that's a word, it might not be. I'm not sure. I'm not an author. But they are, they're saying that Jimmy Dore is like the personal, he is the personification of Medicare for all. If you don't like Jimmy Dore, you don't like Medicare for all. There's no in, there's no like, you know, ins and outs. There's no nuance. There's no gray area. If I say that I don't like Jimmy when he goes up on stand-up shows talking about how transgender people are men, if I say that that's rude, if I say that's offensive, then I don't like Medicare for all, apparently, because those things make sense. That's logical. That's what a logical person would say, apparently. Um, but uh, yeah, I just, I just find the whole situation to be bizarre. Um, and, uh, so I've been, I, you know, the video you reference is like, uh, I think like a month ago, two months ago, yeah. I don't know. Whenever he says like some really bizarre stuff, I like making a video about it. Cause one of the, the primo things that I do on my channel is I love like mocking people that say like really ridiculous things. And I think Jimmy Dore is a very good example of that. He's a comedian. He should be able the, to take it. I, he should be, he should be, but I've asked him, you know, Hey, can you let me on your show? And he's always ignored me. So, hey, maybe, you know, I don't know. You know, this is, but this is a big part of this, right? Everyone's like, oh, why are you making about Jimmy Dore? Jimmy Dore's making about himself. Let's Absolutely. be very honest. Exactly. It's he's about Medicare for all because like, we care about it. We organized. I'm saying this full, okay? I spent personally, and it's not about me, but I know other people because I was, the, I, I saw the people organizing around Medicare for all. People, hundreds of thousands of people, possibly even millions, called lawmakers' offices. We had... Uh, folks on storming Capitol Hill on Medicare for all. You had great leaders in NNU and other leaders attach themselves. This has been something that has been so coordinated and thoughtful ever since, you know, we lost this, this fight with Obamacare. And, and, and he's taking, he is making it about himself and other people are clout writing it. And that is dangerous for democracy. And if you, as I am, I'm going to share right now, I'm on Medicaid. I don't talk about my personal finances. I don't talk about any of this. Trust me, I have family members who are ill. We would love Medicare for all immediately, as so many others who are sick and ravaged and hurt by this. But instead, this argument is spending, is taking up way too much airtime, even on our show. And I know we've talked about this extensively, but I wanted to have you on the show to give your version because, um, because it is important to platform folks who are not part of that little orbit. Let's move on to a different topic because I, I'm, I'm done with him. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's talk about things that are circumstantial to people's lives uh, immediately, immediately, immediately. I'm not saying Medicare for all isn't. It is. A, it, it will take two to three years to pass if that's the case, uh, because we'll need some more votes in Congress. Let's talk about the relief that Congress does not understand Americans need, whether it's rent relief, uh, paying off their health care debt because they didn't have health care. Um, let's play that clip of Rand Paul that we almost played a second ago. This bill is free money for everyone. Proponents don't care if you're fully employed or own your own house or own your own business. Free money for everyone, they cry. And yet, if free money were the answer, 
If money really grew on trees, why not give more free money? Why not give it out all the time? Why stop at $600 a person? Why not $1,000? Why not $2,000? I mean, That's a good question. <laughs> right? Use that in a campaign ad. Uh, it's first off, two thousand dollars, two thousand dollars, two thousand dollars. It still won't, you know, cut into most of uh, everybody's debt and expenses from the last nine months. What's so infuriating about this to me is it just reeks of absolute disgust for working people. It reeks of it, and I don't it's know how also, that argument works right now. For it's also like just ignorance, like. The idea that there's no difference or distinction between 600 and 2000, like these are just numbers. They don't mean anything. Like a lot of people I know, like it's a, like a lot of people are like a $2,000 behind on rent, you know, and that $2,000 would make sure that they don't lose their house in the middle of winter time in a pandemic depression. Right. So it's just the idea, like they just don't even know what, like, like uh, Nancy Pelosi also said, $600 is a significant amount for working families. they, they, They have no understanding or grasp of what money is, is for most it remind, people. It reminds me of, uh, Napoleon, I want to hear what you think on this, because you've spent a lot of time in, in Europe where uh, even in austerity-driven austerity countries like Germany or right-wing countries like Poland, um, they're able to recognize that working people and, and their economy uh, is, is more successful when people's basic needs are being addressed. But this reminds me of when George H.W. Bush could not tell you the price of milk. He had no sense of the price of milk. And that, like, some people say that was a big part of him losing his reelection. Napoleon, what's I mean, your thought? That's right. It's like, I, it's like, I don't even see, I, I don't know, like, nowhere in that speech is he tying it to the, to, the, to the reality of what people are actually going through. It's like, there's a reason why we're discussing these numbers is because that's life or death for some people. That's being uh, in, in, in a house or in a, an apartment and being on the street. That's like, it's, it's everything. There's people with kids, with children. He doesn't seem to care for him. It's all about, it's okay when he's, when he votes to cut taxes for the ultra rich who doesn't right. do, who he feels don't have to pay their fair share. But when it's to give back to people who actually need that to survive, it's, it's such a vile thing. Like you say, it's, it's um total disregard for people who, who don't have it, but for the average working people, for the average poor people. There's more to this clip that's, uh, let's just play the rest of it. <laughs> Maybe these new free money Republicans should join the everybody gets a guaranteed income caucus. Why not 20000 a year for everybody? Why not 30000 If we can print up money with impunity, oh. why not do it? We, we actually can print up money with impunity. Don't give him a copy of Stephanie Kelton. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, these are wonderful questions. If only, you know, he talked to regular people, he would know the answers. You know, it's just, it's... I, Last I, I time that happened, his neighbor punched him or something. <laughs> so don't... <laughs> that is true, actually. He's probably afraid. He probably, like, you know, just doesn't walk on sidewalks anymore. Just <laughs> random people. Anyone who's not wearing a suit and tie is probably the enemy in his mind. It's, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, Napoleon, this is, um, I feel like we need to do a compilation of these ads and just air them. I mean, this is like, I, I, we were talking about this in the majority report, how Nancy Pelosi just doesn't have a messaging strategy. It's right there. They're delivering it to you right. like right. on a platter. Right. Right. Exactly. Does the messaging strategy need to be in an ice cream container or something for her to look into it. I really don't understand. <laughs> No, it has to be in a $12,000 refrigerator. There you go. I mean, that's, exactly, that's exactly what we need. He's, he's saying everything that, that's wrong with this system and, and the, the opposite of what people actually want and need. So it's, 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 it's right there, like you said. Uh, Slam dunk. Slam dunk. I mean, so, so ultimately, you know, we're going to have 600 whopping dollars to, I don't know, pay our utilities, I guess. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure how much in some food for families, right? Um, but we need to do more, right? And I think it's one thing to bitch about this stuff. It's another thing to actually put out a course of action. And so I'm just going to throw one last piece out to you guys before we wrap up. Um, my theory of change right now is really through the unification of, of, uh, of different unions to pressure the bigger union, AFL-CIO, to pressure our lawmakers who are, well, at least the Democratic lawmakers, 
have to work with unions. And I think that's that's really the way we're going to be able to get immediate change. But if do you guys have ideas? Because I do feel like it's important that we present different ideas and, and a strategy moving forward. Napoleon, you're Napoleon, let's pull some international stuff. You 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 know other folks, folks around the world are are providing more for their citizens. Have you heard anything different? I mean, uh, like like I said, like in, in Germany, it's it's uh, like you, you said, it's more austerity, but there's, there's they don't have these type. I don't feel like these type of problems. When I talk to people over there and it's it's, it's humane. Some people, if you don't have the, the finances, the, the state will provide money for you. Uh, pe- people have health care over there. You, you don't really see people. I don't I don't I didn't see people on the streets or any or anything like that. And and it's just a totally that I. I Anecdotally, when I talk to people, they they see America as they call it predatory capitalism over there. It's mm. kind of like er, er, everybody for themselves. That's the vibe that they have. So just e- even being being on the other side, the the perception of of what's going on in America is exactly that. And I think that um, we just got to keep pushing and, and showing people that it's it's possible that there's another way and and that we deserve this. This is not free money. It's we're paying taxes. So it's not free money. That money doesn't come from anywhere. It comes from our pockets. Every time we buy something, every time we pay income taxes, everything else, it's money, but we want to redistribute it back to us and not necessarily all going to military or other things that we don't, you know, we don't need. You mean $500 million going to Israel um, isn't your priority when you're, no? <laughs> Wasn't there $3 billion for the Space Force? I think I saw that in there. Gotta have you, you just have to have rations of whatever on the moon before you can feed people in your own country, of course, of course. I mean, but this is also why, I mean, if we wanna, if, if neoliberals hate the right wing so much and if they hate Trump so much, then they've gotta do something because this is how the right wing, this is how the populists on the right wing or supposed populists, pseudo populists on the right wing, neo, you know, neoconservatives are able to tap into frustration and anger is they see division, they see economic instability, and they put people on YouTube and put people in different spaces, Tucker Carlson, whatever, who preach conspiracy theories. And of course, they, they, they point to Nancy Pelosi and her ice cream palace. I mean, that's, that's it. That's how they're able to pray. If they just provided, which we can afford, of course, the most basic needs to Americans it would eliminate the rise of Trump, Trump right-wing fascism. And we, I mean, Germ- look to Germany. If you want any case for providing to your citizens so nobody capitalizes off of, politically capitalizes off of economic division, look to history. And, and, and I think like you, 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 we, there's also an opportunity, I believe, to engage with pe- pe- people on the right who, 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 who need things that, 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 that are angry for the same reasons as people on the left are angry. We just have to find a way to, 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 to do that where they could understand that this actually, this is possible. Like whatever Rand Paul is trying to mock, this is actually the solution to a lot of our problems. Well, there was a poll that came out that said 88% of Americans wanted a $1,200 stimulus check and we still only got 600. So yeah. I, I find that to be just bizarre. They just, I don't just, it's really, it's just ignorance. They just don't care. They just free money, Andrea. That's what the Heritage Foundation told him to say. It's free money. I wish. I wish it were free money. Polls don't matter, clearly. I mean, this stuff, it's not influencing anybody. It's uh, We're past the point where phone calls, polls, frankly, even showing up on the streets, I think, is uh, is making a difference. I think it's really going to be withholding your labor and and leveraging the labor and your, your pocketbooks to, to make a difference. I, um, I or- absolutely think so, Yeah. We're going to need to do some very, very historic demonstrations. Like, I think we need to do like an occupation of Washington, D.C. or something, mm-hmm. you know, like something that like we can pinpoint. I apologize if you can hear the dog in the background. It's okay. but something we can pinpoint. Right. And just show them that we do not accept or tolerate what they are doing. It's just theft. It's rioting and looting, except in corporate form. They are right. stealing our money and they're giving it away to the Space Force, an imaginary fairy tale thing that donald trump made up that turned into a sitcom that's funnier than the actual like situation because yeah but my point is it's ridiculous they create and what is the space force it's another way for them to take our money and give it to their friends it's another excuse it's another column on their invoice just more money that they can waste that's all it is yeah they talk about government waste all the time all that right it's it's just ridiculous it's it's just absurd i 
you know, it's, I mean, it's we t- not good. They're obsessed with government waste and how we can pay for it and all these lines. And it so easily can be flipped in this moment um, when people are paying attention. Napoleon, let's do final thoughts. Uh, plus, I want to add tax the rich, you know, that there's some people that that, that are gotten there's this money is around. We need to tax the rich, tax the corporations so they pay their fair share and everything like that. Um, I just think that we, 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 we need to stay focused and, and, and stay, stay unified. We all want the same things. And, and there, there's there's a better ways of doing it and there's wrong ways of doing it. And, and I think it's pretty obvious that, uh, you know, we're make we're making strides. And, and I think it, it's these crisis, times of crisis uh, uh, is an opportunity for us to get, you know, significant change going forward if we if we play the game right. I'm going to end with one thought that um, it's not either or. I just want to end with this thought. Even if there wasn't a tax the rich campaign, even if the rich couldn't couldn't get that passed, there's still enough money to pay for these things if we allocated them to the right places. So we shouldn't be dependent on also taxing the rich. We should just stop funding the Space Force or, frankly, just fund the people. It's not there's no money's left over. There's money. Right. You know, you don't care about the deficit when you're when you're sending it to Israel. Interesting. Okay, Guys, thanks so much. The The money's money's there. there. The money's there. All right. We become a stronger country. If you want to use patriotism, if, you know, you provide basic services to your own people. I prefer patriotism. I love it. <laughs> Go check out Andrea's Patreon and, of course, her show. Uh, where? What's your Patreon account? We don't. We don't know. Uh, my YouTube name is Cyberdemon Five Three One. I made it when I was a teenager. I like video games. I'm a video gamer. I don't really have any Patreon exclusive content. I tried doing that, and then no one watched them, so everything is free. But if you want to give me money, I accept money. I love money. I appreciate money. And uh, can I plug my show later? I'm doing another thing tonight. Yes. Tonight. I'm going to be playing The Grinch on PlayStation as part of my annual series, The War on Christmas. Um, and in this game, you kill Santa Claus with rotten eggs. So we're going to stick it to the right wing and we're going to kill Santa Claus live on stream. And you can check it out. I love it. Napoleon, what's your what's your album against? Uh, Dragon Ball, Dragon Ball G, but I have a whole catalog. You, you can you can go through it. Uh, I did a song with the Surfs called King of King of the Griffs. I'm calling out the Griffs, so you could check it out. Also, did a dedication song with Mundo for Michael Brooks. Rest in peace to my brother. Uh, you know you could check it out online. Um, we're gonna have to play that next time you're on. I forgot about that until today. All right, cool. And everybody else, uh, thanks so much for joining us. Everybody else, make sure to join our book club. As I mentioned, our first book is Thomas Paine and the Promise of America. Go to patreon.com slash the Nomi Show. There's three levels. Uh, The next book is going to be The Death of uh, Who Killed Bertha Casadas, of course, the famous indigenous environmental activist. Excuse me. Uh, I am so excited to read this book. We interviewed uh, the author, Nina Lakani, who's also faced death threats around the world for covering the story uh, extensively. And then want to know how to pass uh, to organize around Medicare for all? Then check out our dear friend, Jane McAlevey's book, No Shortcuts, Organizing for Power in the New Gilded Age. And then finally, we're going to be doing Plunkett of Tammany Hall. This is all in January. So go check it out right now. Um, Also, little plug, I'm going to be on the Ben Dixon show tonight, uh, live stream. What time am I supposed to? I think I'm going to be on at seven o'clock. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe if I say this, we will absolutely do it at seven o'clock. So go check that out. Go to Ben Dixon's show, dear ally of ours, dear friends, friend, and um, and let's do some shout outs. JL, 20 bucks. Thank you for having Andrea on the show. Check out her daily stream above it all for entertaining left is best content. Thank you to me, key fans. Thank you to Andrea for doing the great work. Unknown story, Andrea referendum over door referendum. Love it. You're popular, Andrea. Thanks to Professor Harvey Kay and everybody in the chat for mixing it up. Always grateful to you and to MIDI doctors and Walrus for working those algorithms and huge, huge thanks for to Bob, Chokin, and Orb for keeping this chat room troll free. I gotta tell you guys, I have never felt it more than this week. I am so grateful to you for being a part of the show, for supporting the show, for recognizing what we're trying to do on this show. There's a lot happening online right now. There's a lot of bad stuff, bad actors who, who I don't know what their motivations are other than money, but, um, you know, we try to operate, we operate in good faith. We try to present the most knowledgeable folks on the show who can offer strategy, historic perspective, um, 
you know, great commentary. And we try to have a diverse group of voices from different backgrounds, different perspectives. It's, it's a, we try very hard to make the show work for the left so that we can build something rather than tear something apart. Um, it's hard because the last week was very divisive. Actually, it's more than last week. And uh, the reason why I had this, I discussed all these things on today's show is because I wanted to kind of break down why this division happens, not calling out the division, but also why. What is the monetization structure behind it? And I know that we're probably going to be discussing this much more in the, in the future, but super grateful to you all. It is not easy uh, <laughs> to, 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 to be in the movement right now, uh, but we're on the side of justice. And even though the levers of power are almost universally controlled by capital, it really does take strength and solidarity, not as a hashtag, but as a movement and recognizing what leverage we have, how to use that leverage and to think very skillfully and to protect our, our folks. So I have, I'm, I'm grateful that you guys have had my back in the last few days. I've gotten a lot of messages from folks. Um, special shout out to, to the folks who've sent me the, the, the troll analyzer tools, the bots. I was able to, to analyze how many people coming at my Twitter were bots and it's a lot, but those bots boost the algorithm so that sometimes it looks like maybe one side is more popular than the other, but I'm, I'm going to tell you, I think, I think AOC is more popular than, than anybody out there trying to instigate uh, left on left violence. So thank you to you all. We will see you tomorrow. Tomorrow's our last live show before the holidays. And uh, we are going to be doing, we have a bunch of interviews that we're going to be airing. So you definitely want to check out the show if you can every day uh, from Tuesday to, to Friday at 3 PM. We have some great deep dive interviews that we're going to be uh, producing. And also I'm going to be doing more live streams at night. So make sure to subscribe and click that alert button, that bell. So you know when we go on at, at night. Thank you to everybody. We will see you tomorrow. Tomorrow.